Welcome to this remastered version of a 2015 series called Judge Awarung Radio. This series was made possible by a community grant from the Mount Alexander Shire Council. Created for Main FM to be aired as short 5-10 to 10 minute segments to highlight and celebrate local Indigenous culture past and present. The series was shortlisted for the 2016 Reconciliation Victoria Heart Awards. For ease of listening, we've edited them together into 30 to 40 minute episodes and have linked episodes by theme rather than representing the order that they were originally broadcast in. So every time you hear the didgeridoo, you'll know it's the beginning or the end of an episode. We hope you enjoy it. Listening to a glimpse into the history and culture of the Jajawarung people. Presented by Uncle Rick Nelson and Ali Hanley. We've got Bill Davies in the studio with us today, and he's going to have a chat to us about um, some things he's been researching about pre-colonial Aboriginal life here in Central Victoria. He's a Castlemaine man and has been looking into the history of uh, Aboriginal life for some years now. Bill, hello, welcome. Thank you. Um, tell us how you got started in, in researching these sorts of things. Uh, I've always been very interested in history of all sorts um, and I did a course at La Trobe University uh, 15, 16 years ago and ended up doing a course on uh, Aborigines in Central Victoria and I loved it and uh, it was to do with, it was on on country, um, getting your feet on the ground and going and actually looking for uh, rock pools, rock wells, artefacts, whatever uh, can be found that's still out there. And it's stunning what is still out there. In so terms. it's kind of an archaeological process in yes, some ways? Yes, there's a lot of uh, research, um, maps, which I love, you know, um, pouring over old maps, putting research together into notes, and then packing up and taking off for a number of days. And um, you can come across uh, uh, oven mounds, uh, scarred trees, significant trees, uh, quartz scatters from where they've been tool making. There's numerous things, rock pools, rock wells, there are tracks and trails. So how far afield have you gone? What sort of area have you crossed? uh, Western Victoria mainly, Uh, the northwest corner especially, uh, with the Mallee and the Wimmera, uh, big desert, little desert, because the further you go, the more remote the area you go to, the more likely you find uh, artefacts and actual campsites in really good condition. What's happened is mainly erosion. If you come back further down into central Victoria, you get a lot of interference from agriculture and tourism, camping, things like along the Murray River. It's very difficult to find things there. But if you're out in the Mallee, you can come across wonderful things. And it's not all desert. It's uh, There's beautiful bush uh, but it is drying out Uh, and there are water holes there are soaks there are springs so tell us a little bit about i mean we all know central victoria is a very dry place especially through summer 
Um, and it's hard to imagine, especially further north than Bendigo, it's hard to imagine living there. You know, it gets really dry and dusty quite yeah. quickly. How did the local Indigenous people Well, I imagine there's, considering a summer like ours now, if, if um, your springs and your soaks are drying up, the water holes and the wells that are around us, especially out the Kiura Ranges, uh, they'll be drying out now, and uh, the curries would gravitate more towards more permanent water holes along streams and creeks and wetlands, any wetlands, swamps, etc. And and of course they would know that these are only they're ephemeral. You, you're eventually you know, the longer and hotter the summer, the further you're going to have to go uh, to find water. I've just been down around Vaughan Springs, and there's. Here we are in December, there's a magnificent waterhole there, stretch of water, but give it another month or so without any significant rain and uh, that will dry up too. So then it's a matter of probably digging uh, in the riverbed itself to find the water course that's still possibly flowing down below ground level or you may get into a pocket of water that way. Uh, of course, Bill, the, um, the countryside would have been a lot different 200 plus years ago, wouldn't yes, it? Yes, yes. There's a, a, quite a strong feeling that when the Mallee was cleared uh, back in the 30s, it altered the whole uh, biodiversity of the place. The uh, ecosystem. A, a lot of the springs and wells went dry and they haven't come back. And they think that, that was to do with the... And it's only 60, 70 years ago or... Um, but they said that dried out, and this is Masola in 1960, only 30 years after they cleared the Mallee, and he said he feels that there should have been a lot more water uh, resources available, but they have just gone, and probably gone forever. Yeah, so um, seems like clearing the, the land has had uh, devastating effects all over in the, in the gold fields. So um, thanks, Bill, and um, we'll try to get you in a few more times, perhaps, and I'm yarn to you some more. Thank you too. This morning we've got Bill Davies in with us um, talking to us about some uh, artefacts and and indications of life, how life was lived before white people came to Australia. And Bill, today we thought we'd ask you about scar trees. Okay. Uh, The favourite scar tree or the favourite tree in central Victoria, we've got box iron bark here, uh, is, is the box tree. It's it's a very light, uh, flexible bark that can be shaped and moulded over fire. You can take a whole strip off a trunk uh, for canoe. Uh, I know a number of trees where there are two, two scars, two canoe. As long as the uh, the bark is continuous, the tree will stay alive. So, And they were very aware of this. There are, there are ones that Rick and I were talking about recently where there are seven or eight scars on one tree. Uh, it doesn't kill the tree if it's done well enough. But utensils, a scar trees are virtually a, um, a hardware shop. If, if you want a water carrier or if you want a shield or, or a cup, well, the canoe's the obvious one. The canoe's, it? yep, the big, long, straight trunk. So uh, is the wood, it's the bark layer that it's, they're it's gathering? It's the bark. And is that particularly hard? It's or? very fibrousy. Uh, the um, box tree is very fibrousy. The red gum's very heavy. 
So different trees would be scarred for different purposes, for different yes, types of tools? Mainly, mainly the box tree. Uh, you, you don't get stringy bark or iron bark utensils. Usually it's, it's, it's box tree. Uh, and the gums, well, the gums don't have that much bark. There's a, there's a, there are eucalypts and there are gum trees. Um, not every eucalypt is a gum tree. Gum trees have deciduous bark. They lose their bark through the year. Iron bark, stringy bark and box trees are not gum trees. They keep their bark, it just gets thicker. You can pick a gum tree because it's flaking. It has flaky bark on it. Yeah. Uh, and, they'll be, and they're called gums, they're blue gums, yellow gums. You don't get a, uh, an, an iron bark gum. There's no such thing. Yeah. But yes, mainly the box tree uh, around Victoria is, is utilised. It so may be different in... A certain time of year pit. that they would do that, Bill, is like in the spring or somewhere when the flat sap is, is moving around the tree. It could be. I hadn't, yeah, I hadn't really thought uh, yeah. or hadn't come across that information, but yet there may be times where they... Uh, they knew it was easier to take off at certain times of year. And, uh, that and would, easier on the tree too. And easier on the tree, yes, yes. Maybe at a quiet time when it's not growing. Uh, or less, less likelihood of um, infection mm. for the mm. tree too. Mm. So canoes, cooking implements, bowls. Oh, yes, cup shapes. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, They'd used the burl on a red gum tree. Now, I don't know how they did this. It was, must have been labour intensive. But those big knotty red burls like a, um, uh, a mallee stump. A uh, huge knotty thing. Now, they were removed, hollowed out somehow, probably burnt and chipped and burnt and chipped, and they'd make huge water bowls out of them. Oh, it's just stunning because it is very dense wood. Mm-hmm. Uh, how that was done, I don't know. Just patience. There are angles, they say an elbow on a branch. If you took the bark off that elbow, you've got a cup in your hand. There's a log that I know about in uh, Big Lake Bort, uh, it's a it's a fallen tree and it has a a big bump in the in the centre of the trunk and they've taken the the bark off turned it upside down and you've got yourself a wonderful shaped boat because that bump is now the bottom of the hull and you've got a prow at each end so it was this wonderful working of the bark and taking it off for particular purposes and was it treated in any in a particular way after it was taken off the tree or was it pretty ready to use I'd say it's pretty ready to use. There was shaping was certainly done on canoes. There was certainly um, shape it to be able to bend it up and form the prow at each end. Sometimes usually with fire, I think over yes, holding over the fire yep. and stuff. And yep, and and uh, it is, it's it's interesting bark when you look closely at it. It's very matted. But um, is it actually the bark bill, or they because bark gets waterlogged and soak if it, uh, and, and sinks, mm-hmm. you know, uh, if you put in the river long enough. Well, I thought it was a cambium um, wood, which is a fine layer of wood in between the bark and the heart. Ah, wood. just underneath it. They were actually ah, taking. Yeah. Okay, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I haven't seen a complete one, but, uh, and, and you know, like that, they're just not around that I know of. There's one I've seen up at Echuca. It's preserved at the Darnia Centre, and it's red gum. 
a red gum canoe and it, it looks to me as though it would just go straight to the bottom. Mm. It is just so thick and heavy, but it, it probably did float. Uh, it's all a matter of water displacement. But uh, I've heard the stories of, of, of um, the Indigenous people ferrying goods across the river for, for, for people. Yep. Uh, um, one stage, even they ferried a piano across the river <laughs> on a bark canoe. Excellent. Uh, That's amazing. Yep. Just out of Eddington. Pianos are heavy. Yeah. Oh, they may have, really made a, may have made an outrigger or a raft or a, put a few of them together. No, they just haven't survived. This is it. A lot of the uh, artefacts are, are organic. So you know, axe handles, boomerangs, spears, and some of those have survived, and very luckily, uh, probably because they've been preserved uh, in someone's house. But a lot of the things, uh, canoes, they must have rotted away years and years ago. I know of one that was found. It's a very sad story up in the Bort area. Uh, some farm workers found a, a canoe buried in sand and they didn't know what to do with it, so they burnt it. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, what a shame. Just stunning, absolutely stunning ignorance mm. and fear. It was, oh, really? This is only 15 years ago or so. Yeah. They found a complete canoe buried in the sand. Why do you think they were afraid? I think they're worried about uh, oh guilt, uh, I suppose, just, just from the past. They don't want to be reminded that their family hasn't owned their property. Forever. Forever. Mm-hmm. You keep going back and saying, okay, where did your father get it from? And where did he get it from? And where? To? And eventually the eyes glaze over. Yeah, the switchboard stain, you can flash red. <laughs> uh, yes, and I think they're worried about, uh, there's all this, still this fear about land rights, that if an artefact is found, that yeah. they'll lose their land. And, and I know of instances, a number of instances, one's down at Franklin Ford where there was a stone arrangement in a paddock. And uh, it was identified. The farmer was notified and said, oh, we'll come back and we just want to help you fence it and keep it uh, away, keep your stock away so it doesn't get damaged. And when they came back, he'd removed it, he'd destroyed it. Mm. Uh, there is fear like that, which is just unfounded. Mm. Uh, what a shame. Yes, there's fear and, and I think just embarrassment in mm. lots of other ways. There's great denial. That you can come up against, sheer ignorance. Mm, you can come up against some real brick walls if you knock on some doors and ask to have a look around. And, uh, yeah. Well, you've been um, asking around for some time. Now, how many years have you been um, researching into...? About 15, 16 years 15, with, yeah. with the Aborigines there. But as I say, there's always been an interest in history. Um, yeah. As a kid, didn't matter. And, and I mean, you, you move into Castlemaine and, and you, of course it's just full-on gold. Um, mm, everything's about the gold. Everything's about gold, gold, gold. Well, it's also interesting to know that there's Aboriginal artefacts right around us. You only have to walk out the door and go down the local creek and you'll find on a far away. Here's our expedition, expedition pass. There's a scar tree there. Some yep. Guildford. Yeah. All right, well, thanks, Bill, for coming in and having another chat to it's us. It's a pleasure. We're here today again with um, Bill Davies, a Castlemaine local man who's interested in um, Indigenous culture and stuff. And today we thought we might touch on some um, oven mounds, Bill. You've you found a few of those. Uh, oven mounds are stunning. Uh, they are around central Victoria, but again, it's, it's, it's uh, agriculture and um, just usage from uh, tourists, etc., that they get damaged or they're not even recognised. Uh, people don't 
actually recognise them for what they are when they see them or come across them. So what do they look like, Bill? Um, oven mounds along the Murray, there is a stunning section between Nyer and Tulibuck uh, around Woodward. Uh, there are massive groups, that's about seven or eight kilometres, and there are 12 huge groups of oven mounds, and it's the residue of a build-up of ash and, and uh, soil uh, and charcoal, and along the Murray up there they can be 30 metres or more in diameter. That's over 100 feet, and it shows a very extensive usage over a long period of time. There are oven mounds down closer towards uh, central Victoria and they may be uh, two to three metres uh, in diameter. There are some up around Bort that are again up around the 20 to 30 metre and up near the Terek Terek National Park. And do so they just look like a little hill? They are, yes, a mound. They could look like a compost heap. Um, and there would be fires lit in them. Now, they're, they're mainly ash and charcoal and some dirt, but there will be remnants in there. There will be bones. There will be mussel shells. A uh, uh, big giveaway if you're walking along is one is the colour of the oven mound. is It's like a pencil lead grey because of the ash and charcoal. It, it certainly stands out from the surrounding yellow or reddish soils. Also, the rabbits love them because they're easy to dig and because of the ash and charcoal content, they're very well insulated so that they can stay a similar temperature all through year. So a 20 or 30 metre oven bill, that would feed up quite a lot of people. That's a yeah. huge amount. Uh, and, and there may be a number of fires in that one mound you know, along there. They're, some of them may be actual ovens themselves where, where the food is, is put in with clay balls that are heat retainers that will cook over a couple of hours. Others would be surface campfires like we use when we go bushwalking um, uh, or and cooking when you're camping and, and, and on that would be other food of other sorts. But it, it's just the incredible amount of time that has elapsed and the number of people and the number of meals. And So are there estimations of how long Indigenous people would use the same oven mounds? Like, is it, uh, do they stay in the same, like year after year they'd come back to the same campsite they, and use the same yes, mounds? Yes, and this is how they grow, I, I gather. help answer that. Yeah, We've done on. an archaeological dig on one on the edge of Lake Bort. Um, the charcoal came back 2,200, 700 and 200 years old. And wow. It's possibly been using that oven for 2,000 years. years. Yeah. That's amazing. There's one up near, um, outside Mildura at Merbeen. It's estimated 15,000 year old. 15,000 year old? Oven mound. Wow. Um, <laughs> That's amazing, isn't and, it? And this is only, I mean, we're talking, you know, it could be 50,000 years there maybe, yeah. but... Uh, you know, floods, uh, all sorts of just erosion. Wash away. Will wash them yeah. away eventually. Uh, there is a theory, and I know I've got a picture of one, uh, that they were used for burials. An oven mound could be used for a burial, then they would go off and start another one. Particularly in this granite country where it's so hard to dig with a stick. Yes, yes. That would be ideal, wouldn't it? Yeah. an old oven. Yeah. Uh, up along the Murray, it's quite common apparently that there are burials in the tops of oven mounds. Yeah. Also, the flood levels. In um, summer, a lot of the oven mounds will be right down by the river, and when the winter floods come, they will back up and onto the higher flood bank. Uh, and in this case, up at uh, Nyer, uh, they're under the uh, Nyer Golf Course, which is built up above the, the Murray. But you can see them coming and going. 
yeah, up right. and down as the water levels came and went. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have a question about them burying people in the oven mounds. Is it a kind of um, cremation process or is it simply a burial because I've the oven a, mound is soft enough to bury people I've, in? I've, I've got a, yes, a photo of it. It's a complete burial. Okay, it, so not it's not like they used heat and fire? No, no, no. But it varies. That varies all over the countryside. There are so many different forms of burial. Some, mm. some were up on raised shelters some of them were actually smoked some of the bodies were smoked some were cremated some were buried lying down in in uh, bark like a bark coffin others were others were tied up into a, a fetal position and, and buried hollow tree stumps hollow tree stumps it's, it's each it's amazing there's so many varieties of uh, burial mounds there's uh, major mitchell did a terrific uh, drawing up along the Murray River of a uh, actually like a cemetery uh, where there are tumuli, uh, small rounded uh, mounds on on the graves. The trees have been carved, the bark's been stripped off. The trees have been, and there are paths walking amongst or going amongst all the um, the mm-hmm. graves there. Um, there are extensive. There's two extensive burial mounds I know of up at Bort. Uh, but they're not distinguished by anything at the moment uh, mm. because the agriculture and farming practices of well, that's how they discovered them too. Yeah, they were digging up the earth and mm. found the bones. Wow, that's that's a whole that's a whole another topic of conversation aside from mm. oven mounds, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> um, and the, the oven mounds had clay balls in them as heat retainers, and the reason is that up in the, those regions there's no stone, there's no natural stone, so they used the, the clay balls. And the clay ball, when it gets fired, as potters will know, it turns to brick. And the more it's fired, the harder it will get. And you can find clay balls up there any colour from yellow through to black, uh, just depending on where they were in the fire and how long they've been reused for. I've heard of clay balls built, being found still with children's finger marks yes. in them. Yes, apparently. And being fired, of course, they've gone hard and, yep. and the prints have stayed in there. Terrific stuff. Yeah, yeah I always look, but I haven't been able to do that yet great thanks Bill for talking to us about oven mounds it's a fascinating topic and um, we'll get you in another day to have a chat about some other things that you've been discovering about pre-colonial life here in central Victoria We're talking to Bill Davies this morning and you spent the most of last winter, I believe, working on some maps um, and looking at trade routes for the local Indigenous people. Can you tell us a bit about that, Bill? I was looking at specifically in northwestern Victoria. There are trade routes leading across the countryside. There's at the end, the very end of the Wimmera River, you go to Lake Hindmarsh, Lake Elbacutcher, and then you come to Lake Wirringren. And that was a huge meeting place uh, for umpteen, who knows, uh, hundreds, possibly thousands of Aborigines. It was a like a bachelor and spinster ball. People wanted to meet each other. You had to keep the bloodlines clear. So people came from the Murray, the Darling, the Loddon. They came from the Grampians and they followed the Wimmera River and various trackways across Western Victoria into Lake Wirringren, where there are huge mounds, apparently, that can be seen of emu eggs, uh, mallee fowl eggs, uh, fish and bird bones. 
Uh, and these were initiation ceremonies would happen. Um, so it indicates, the, the size of these mounds indicates a very large gathering of people. Yes. Who yes. would have been festival-like, really. Oh, very much so. Yeah, there'd mm. be corroborees. Arranged marriages. Yes. Uh, of course. Yes. Uh, and also t- as trade routes, we're talking, going back to the trade routes, everybody would bring something uh, because they wanted something that came from a another area it might be particular reeds that made spears and the people from down uh, this way would take up greenstone axe blanks and other things as well there may be possum skins there'd be a lot of trading going on for things that aren't available in your area Uh, i i have heard and correct me if i'm wrong that um, people would travel from as far as western australia over to central victoria to get white ochres or white clays wow. or particular things. I might be making There are up. pipe clays. Uh, but it just shows how extensive mm. the trade actually went. Oh, it went right, in, right into South Australia. There was paturi, which was a, a narcotic uh, that was highly prized. And there are, there are tracks and trails into South Australia because it, it only comes from a particular place uh, in the South Australia. But it was... Um, it was traded over this way for whatever I don't know. Uh, whatever the, they, whatever they didn't. We have. know the greenstone's been found in the South Australia, New South Wales, oh. at the seven hundred k's at the Wales. Oh, so, there so, we go. Yeah. So yeah, there's big trade routes mm. going on. So tell us what you've you've drawn a map of some of the local areas, and you've you've got sort of campsites that indicate the route. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, you can find those campsites too. Um, if you go, you, it may only be a scar tree now, but if you're lucky enough, there, there will be an oven mound or an oven mound, and they'll be in groups. This is the, the lovely thing is that you'll find, you may find one an oven mound on one side of a creek. When you go over the other side and have a look, there'll be a couple more. If you look further around, you may find scar trees, uh, significant trees like grafted ring trees. Um, there are quartz scatter sites. Mm-hmm. Should also be apparent uh, if you're lucky enough. You can find, you know, virtually a complete home. So a lot of these things, unless you know what to look for, you would just walk past and not yep. take any notice of, really. Yeah, I don't know how many for how many years I've walked past things that were just right there in front of me. You just don't recognise them. But it's like looking for orchids, unless you know what you're looking for. You know, native orchids. Once you see one, though, you see them everywhere. Um, and it's the same with these things. I don't know how many years I've been walking past lots of things looking for something else. Uh, and now I feel like going back and retracking everything because you know, I used to live over near the Grampians. And I looked at the Aboriginal stone uh, art over there, or rock art, but heaven knows what else was there that I just walked straight past because I didn't realise, didn't recognise. It takes a bit of, of feet on ground. Well, we've got Bill Davies with us again today. Um, Bill's been popping in regularly to talk to us about cultural heritage things in, in Victoria, northwest Victoria and central Victoria. How are you, Bill? Well, thank you very much, Rick. That's good. Yeah. Um, Pleased to so be you, back. You've found um, evidence of stone scatters and, and stuff around? There, there is. In this central Victoria, we're, um, we're lucky to have granite, which will have... Um, and gold country so you have quartz veins and quartz reefs and quartz is is uh, stunning it has something like uh, the grain of quartz is six times 
uh, finer than stainless steel. So a little knife made from quartz is six times sharper than a surgeon's scalpel. It is extremely sharp. Mm. It's amazing. A very fine-grained stone. And another indication of a campsite will be a quartz scatter, uh, and it means that somebody's been there napping, it's called, napping away at a core block and striking the core in a particular way and that a flake will come off that can be used as either a, a small little blade for maybe taking the skin from a possum very slicing very quickly uh, they could be the points on um, spears uh, shaving tools for their yes spears certainly yes and... for, for carving mm. uh, it's a, such a stunning versatile for carving uh, wood do you mean yes yes for, for putting points on, on mm. spears or, or the women would use put uh, points on digging sticks for digging out Murnong um, quartz was pretty versatile and readily available in, in central Victoria but of course as you go further north you run out but it may have been something that was traded uh, so you may find quartz scatters up along the Murray River where there's no quartz or natural quartz so you know that that's come from somewhere down in central Victoria yeah great and we're lucky here Bill in central Victoria that we've got some lava flows I yes. and, and they make Little tools with that. Yes, the, the basalt that where we were today down at Vaughan, the basalt is uh, has been used for the, the grinding bowls and grinding grooves. Uh, another very fine, fine stone, fine grain stone that. Uh, so it's quite hard. Oh, very, well. very, and uh, these grinding grooves uh, they could be two to three inches deep. These bowls, so they've been there and been used for. So what would Countless they? meals. So they would grind grains grinding, and herbs? Grinding and grain on those yeah. ones and maybe making a damper. Uh, and there are other ones nearby where there are uh, axe grinding grooves where you can easily see the action. So it's like of, a knife sharpener? Uh, yes, 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 because that's it. They're not sharpening the whole blank. When they talk about a blank, it's like a, an axe blade. Yeah. It's only the edge that is uh, worked Otherwise, it's just, it's just too hard. Mm. The greenstone's 500 million year old uh, volcanic, and it's extremely hard. And so when, when you, it's polished up, it looks like marble. Absolutely yeah. beautiful. So it's not jade. No, greenstone. No, no, no. greenstone. This is is a oh, I've forgotten the geographical term for it, but it's it's lava. It's it's okay. very old basalt. Oh, yeah. uh, there's a ridge that runs from Mount William near Lansfield, the Colbenabin Range, and it runs all the way up to Rochester. And it's a, a range that's up above the surrounding countryside because it is so hard, and it's greenstone. The whole lot is greenstone. And there are Aboriginal quarries along it at Mount Ida and Mount Camel over towards uh, Heathcote. And that greenstone is extremely hard, and it's resisted erosion. That's why there's a huge long ridge and the rest of the countryside is, is oh, eroded yeah. away. Nice mm. sharp edge on it. Oh, very, very, uh, very nice. fine grained. The nice finer, sharp. Yeah. Um, the lava down here, you, you can get lava. Lava comes in various. You can get the, the fluffy lava that will out of Mount Franklin. It will float on water, pumice. It's mm. got air bubbles in it. And then there's the slower flowing volcanics that's very, very thick and heavy and oily flowing and doesn't go very far and I think that's the denser 
So this this formed the basis of the majority of the tools that the local Aboriginal people would have used. Oh, stone axes, mm. hand axes as well, lots of hand axes. And helped them form their wooden tools as well. Yes, Because it yes. allowed them to carve. Yep, scraping, scraping tools, and cutting out uh, holes in trees to get at possums. That was a favourite one, get possums out. Ducks' eggs, ducks lay a lot of up in trees as well as down in reeds it's mm-hmm. quite interesting and honey see they'd find a they'd find a native beehive in a tree trunk and uh, then they may leave it as it is and just uh, farm the honey off or they may sort of want to chop a hole in and get the whole lot or get the honeycomb out because they would make sweet drinks using waratah and honey and all sorts of things soaking it in water and cool them on and making sweet drinks just like we like to have on hot days today. You're listening to a glimpse into the history and culture of the Jaja people. Presented by Uncle Rick Nelson and Ali Hanley. <laughs>